All right, John chapter 7, we'll pick it up in verse 37 through verse 53. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, Of a truth, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division amongst the people because of him. And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have ye not brought him? The officers answered, Never man spake like this man. Then answered them, the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him, and know what he doeth? They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And every man went unto his own house. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would pour out your Spirit upon us, that we might understand, know, and appreciate all that Christ has done to save a people unto himself. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the title of this morning's sermon is Drink of Christ. Drink of Christ. And so I'll be focusing on verses Uh, 37 through 39, where it's the Feast of Tabernacles and the Lord is going to stand up and um, say what he does say there. The main points I want us to walk home with today, the main points I want us to appreciate is that Jesus Christ is the fountain of living water. Christ is the fountain of living water. And that Jesus is the rock from which the water proceeds. And also that Jesus himself is the water. So I want us to walk home with those three points. Now, When the Lord stands up and says what he does here and cries out, that seems like kind of a strange statement. Uh, I don't think anybody there appreciated it because as we read through here, nobody appears to come to him and do what he says. Nobody appears to come to him and drink of him. So we would have to ask ourselves, well, what is the context? Why would he stand up and make that statement when he does and where he does and why would the people appreciate it? Now, you recall back in John chapter 4 that the Lord... um, made a similar statement, but the context was quite obvious. That was in when he was passing through Samaria, and he went and he sat on the well of Jacob, and a woman of Samaria came up there for to draw water. And so uh, we can readily understand why she might appreciate what he's talking about when he's sitting on the well and he says, give to me to drink. So he's drawing a direct relationship between the water of the well and the Holy Spirit, which he talks about giving. Um, The water there is um, likened unto the Holy Ghost as it is here, and we know that because he tells us it's likened unto the Holy Ghost, and it's water that truly satisfies the human soul, and one who drinks of it will never thirst because they are ever satisfied. 
Well, what is the context here? And we know that the Lord is speaking of the Holy Ghost because he tells us that. And so we can appreciate again, he's going to give that which satisfied. But what would these people think when Jesus stands up on the last day and he cries as he does, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now, I always like to remind us that we have the Bible, which helps us to appreciate the things that are said here. Um, The Bible contains all the pieces of the puzzles from which we might appreciate what the Lord is teaching here. But more importantly, as we covered last week, we have the Holy Ghost, which is the interpreter of the Bible, so that we might understand that Jesus is speaking about himself. He's always teaching us the gospel. He's always teaching us something about himself. And in verse 39, again, we have the benefit of that statement, which these people do not have. There the Lord graciously tells us that he is speaking of the Holy Ghost, that they which believe on him should receive. So very clearly it is set before us here that he's talking about the Holy Ghost. And he also, we should appreciate that he's equating coming to him, coming to him and drinking of him with believing, with believing. And so you can appreciate that metaphor all throughout the Bible when it talks about coming and drinking uh, to Christ, and that means it's talking about believing, eating him, drinking him. That's all it has to do with believing on him. So though these people do not have the Bible like we have, we do know, as says in Romans chapter 3, verse 2, that they do have the advantage of having the oracles of God, meaning they have the Old Testament, which the Lord makes reference to here in verse 38 when he says that the Scriptures hath said... He that believeth on me, as the scriptures have said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. So that leaves us with a couple of questions. First one is, what scriptures? And we're going to cover some of those. What scriptures would lead them to an understanding of what he's saying? And out of whose belly shall they flow? Well, given that it flows from those that come unto the Lord Jesus and drink from him those that believe on him, obviously the Christian is in view here. Living water shall flow from the belly of those that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? And again, what scriptures might be in view that will explain these things to us? Why would one associate Jesus with living water? For clearly, I have to drink from him first before living waters can flow from me. Well, if I happen to be within earshot of Jesus when he cried out like that, I can't think of anything that might me appreciate what he just said. And given our narrative here in John, it doesn't appear that anybody else understood. It doesn't appear that anybody took him up on it. We do see in a couple of verses that follow that upon hearing this, some of the people say that he is that prophet. Some identify him as that prophet, while others say he is the Christ. Now, If Jesus is the Christ and the people understood what that meant and they understood that Christ comes in the volume of the book, that it is written of him, and in Psalm chapter 40, verse 7 says that, then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. When people understood that they were speaking of Christ and they should have understood that because in John chapter 5, verse 39, he said that, he said that all of the scriptures testify of me. Search the scriptures, for in them you think ye have eternal life, 
and they are they which testify of me. So he has stood right in front of them and told them that everything in the Bible testifies about him. So Psalm chapter 40, verse 7, makes a very similar statement. Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. If they understood that he was the Christ, and they had been paying attention to the things that he had been saying, then they might have understood what he meant when he said, Come unto me and drink. So why would Jesus stand up on the last day of the feast and cry out as he did? What would the context have been that the pre people would then appreciate what was in view here? And we should appreciate that it's the Feast of Tabernacles. And verse 2 tells us that it's the um, Feast of Tabernacles. And verse 37 says that it's the last day, the great day of the feast, when Jesus stood up and he cried what he did. So this is not happening in a vacuum. It's, it's happening at a certain location, at a certain time, associated with the um, Jewish calendar. And that is certainly uh, by God's providence that he would do that. So what's supposed to happen during the feast and why? Well, our deacon read for that, uh, read that for us this morning in Leviticus 23, verses 39 through 43. It tells us what the people were supposed to do during that feast, that they were supposed to dwell in booths, or tabernacles for seven days. And it tells us why they were supposed to do that. Um, they were supposed to do that so each succeeding generation would know that God brought them out of Egypt and made them dwell in booths, which he did until such time as they came into the promised land. So obviously the Lord is teaching them a lesson every year that they would appreciate that they came out of Egypt, which was the house of bondage, and they had to dwell in, in, in booze for the period of time that they were in the wilderness. So again, the purpose of the feast is to help them appreciate that. And one of the things we need to appreciate that as people, we are um, dull of hearing. <laughs> and I, um, God... <laughs> for thousands of years, teaches the same message. <laughs> he teaches the same thing, all the way from Genesis chapter 1 through the whole Bible. He's always teaching about Christ. And so he gives them a feast here that they are to observe once a year for seven days, dwell in a booth, so you will know that God brought you out of, the, out of Egypt, out of the house of, of bondage. So while they were in the wilderness, while they were sojourning them, he sustained them all of the days of their wilderness sojourn. So if you're living in a booth, you need to appreciate that it was God who took care of you and provided for you all of that time. He provided the manna from heaven to feed them, which in John chapter 6, Jesus taught them that the manna pointed to him, that it represented him, and that he himself is the true bread of God, which gives life unto the world. He makes that very clear statement. He is the true bread of life, which gives life unto the world. In addition to manna, in addition to God providing the manna for them, he also provided them water from the rock to satisfy their thirst, which in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, for the benefit of those that have the New Testament, it tells us that that water spiritually represents Christ. In 1 Corinthians 10, 4, it says, quote, they drank of that spiritual rock, that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So here the Lord is making a direct application between himself as a source of water and God's providence to Israel of water 
during their time in the wilderness when at God's commandment, Moses struck the rock out of which then flowed water. Now in John chapter 6, Jesus said that the manna typifies him. Here, somewhat indirectly through the Feast of Tabernacles, he is saying that he is the source of the water, and so come to him and drink. So given God's providential and sustaining hand, we should appreciate that the first day of the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread, excuse me, the first day of the seven-day Feast of Tabernacles is a Sabbath day. That's a day when no work is to be done. So beginning the Feast of Tabernacles with a Sabbath, a day of rest, might help the people to appreciate that we rest in the providence of God as we tabernacle or sojourn on this earth, ever being led by God to the promised land. That's, that's what they should have gotten from this. They should understand that beginning this feast with a Sabbath day, they should know that they rested in the Lord all of the time that they wandered in the wilderness, that God provided food for them and he provided drink for them. And if you read through the details, he speaks to them about that and he says, talks about them, about how their feet never swelled up nor did their um, clothing wax old. And he says, and you don't understand it. Forty years they didn't need a tailor. Forty years they didn't need to soak their feet in, uh, in salt to, um, to help them. Um, again, God was providing for them materially and spiritually and everything that was required to get them through um, the wilderness of sin to the promised land. Now, the fact that the eighth day is a Sabbath day offers the people an opportunity to reflect on what the Lord has done before they can travel home, travel, you recall, is work. They can only travel a certain distance on the Sabbath day. So it gives them an opportunity to look back and think about what the Lord has done for them. The fact that it's on the eighth day is indicative of being cut off. That day is when circumcision is done. So they should appreciate as they look back that the Lord has set apart for himself a peculiar people, and he will lead them until such time as they get to the promised land. So... This is during the Feast of Tabernacles. These are the things that should come to their mind, and they should appreciate when he makes that statement. Now, given what is said before the people here, it's also important for us to appreciate that Jesus is in the temple when he cries out as he does. The Lord, we know, taught all throughout um, Israel, but it's when he's standing in the temple when he makes this statement. He's in the temple, which is on Mount Zion, which is solid rock through which King Hezekiah chiseled a tunnel, which then delivered water from the spring of Gihon to the pool of Siloam, which is also called um, Siloah in Nehemiah. So if you're trying to look them up in the New Testament, it's called Siloam, but it's called Siloah in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 15. So imagine the geography. God is the creator of all things. He has done everything to glorify himself and everything that happened throughout the history of Israel in one way or another teaches the gospel or teaches us things that we need to appreciate, respecting the gospel. So why did King Hezekiah build that tunnel? Well, he did it so that the people that lived in Jerusalem would have water during a siege, a time when the enemy of God's people might surround the city, endeavoring to destroy it first through famine and thirst, and then by a direct assault. And we can read about this in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, and I'll read both of those to us here. In 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 20, we read, And the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might, and how he made a pool, that would be the pool of Silo, 
and a conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 30, it speaks of that again. It says, this same Hezekiah also stopped the water course of Gihon, meaning he prevented the, in this case, it was the Assyrians that were coming down under Sennacherib to lay siege to the city. He stopped it up so they would not have water. Um, and he brought it straight down to the west side of the city of David. And Hezekiah prospered in all his works. You can read about this preparation for the siege in uh, chapter 32 of Second Chronicles and also in Isaiah chapter 36. Now, it's interesting to note that the pool of Silo, where the waters gather as they exit the rock of Mount Zion, it's located near the king's garden at the base of stairs that go down from the city of David. We read about this in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 15. I hope you can appreciate all of, the ge- all of the geography and all of the things that take place with respect to the history of Israel. So Jesus is really not making this statement in a vacuum. He's saying something that, um, with the benefit of the Spirit, uh, you know, like we have, again, we can understand it. But again, there he is on top of Mount Zion, <coughs> solid rock. Hezekiah's uh, conduit flows through it, and water's empty out at the Pool of Silo, next to which is the king's garden. Um, and stairs come down from the city of David. Um, in Nehemiah 3.15, it speaks about the rebuilding of the, of the walls and setting up the gates. It says, But the gate of the fountain repaired Shulen, the son of Colzen, Colza, the ruler of part of Mizpah. He built it and covered it and set the doors thereof, the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. And this is the salient point. And the walls of the pool, the wall of the pool of Silo by the king's garden, and unto the stairs that go down from the city of David. So that helps us to appreciate. The Lord is obviously recording that for our benefit. The people there surely knew where it was located. We know that when the Lord heals somebody later in the chapter, uh, in the Gospel of John, that he's going to tell them to go rinse in the pool of Silo, and he's going to, his, vision will, will, his vision will be restored to him. So again, so we should appreciate that the waters that issue from the rock water the king's garden, which is at the base of the stairs that come down from the city of David, which is an illusion, of course, for Christ Jesus himself. Now, in the New Testament, which we have the benefit of, but again, they have the Old Testament. These things are in the Old Testament too. There's nothing new, put that in quotes, in the New Testament. It just tells us what the Old Testament means. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, tells us that the king's garden represents Christians. Christ Jesus, we know, is the king, and he is God manifest in the flesh. In verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says, For we are laborers together of God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's husbandry. So, going back to the Old Testament, again, as it's written in the Scriptures, as the Lord um, says to them, you'll recall that it was the Lord God who planted the Garden of Eden, and out of the ground made grow every tree, That is pleasant to the sight. Read about that in Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Now, there are places in the Bible that speak about Christians as being trees. Psalm uh, 1, Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and verse 3, which I'll read here, speak about the man. And uh, I'll read that. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. And he shall be like a tree, Planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season, his leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. This, of course, is speaking of Christ, but by extension, it's speaking about 
Christians as well. In Revelation chapter 9, verse 4, it um, speaks of the Christian. It speaks of the elect. In uh, Revelation chapter 9, verse 4, it says here, and this is talking about pouring uh, during the seven trumpets, it says, And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And so the symbolic language of Revelation chapter 9 here is telling us that grass, green thing, and tree represent men. And so we can appreciate, again, how we are the Lord's garden. But this, of course, again, is ultimately speaking of Christ himself. Now, there is a theme which carries all through the Bible, beginning in Genesis and ending up in the book of Revelation. This is with respect to the tree, um, that it's Christ ultimately. The tree of life in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, we know that that represents Christ. And um, Revelation chapter 22 Verse 2 speaks of that. I'm going to read the two, first two verses of Revelation 22 because not only does, it, does this theme of the tree carry through the Bible, but so does this river of life. Chapter 22 of Revelation. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river, there was a tree of life which bare 12 manners of fruit and yielded her fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so this carries through the, the whole Bible. In Genesis chapter uh, 2, it speaks about water coming up from the earth and splitting into four heads. That represents the four gospels. That talks about the gospel going on in the world. In Ezekiel 47, it speaks about a river coming out from the threshold of the temple, going down to the right side, which would be the south side, which is where the pool of Siloam is. And then it carries forth all the way through um, in the Bible, to Revelation 22, where it speaks of this river of, of life. Now, you will recall, with respect to the resurrection of Christ, that Mary Magdalene went looking for Jesus where? She went looking for him in the garden. That's where the tomb was. So sin begins in the garden. We are the plants of the garden. And where does the, the Lord finish dealing with the issue of sin? In the garden where his tomb was. So unable to find him, we read that, that she weeps. And she doesn't know that he is standing right in front of her. And so what do we read in verse 15 of John chapter 20? Jesus saith unto her, Women, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. She has supposed correctly. <laughs> Jesus is the gardener. He is the king of kings, and we Christians are the pleasant trees of his garden, the king's garden, which he waters or gives drink to. He is the, the spirit is the water of life, which we read about in Revelation 22, and it proceeds from the throne of God, um, which is Christ, and of the Lamb, which is Christ. So that theme carries all the way through. They have the benefit of understanding what Moses did in the wilderness, that he struck the water and it brought forth struck the rock, and it brought forth water. And so too do we know that when Christ was on the cross and he was pierced with the soldier's spear, that it brought forth water out of his side. So again, we have the benefit of the crucifixion, which they do not have yet. But um, the Lord makes reference to um, the fact that these things are written in scriptures. And so right now we have lots of pieces of the puzzle here for us to keep track of. Some of these pieces of the puzzle are from the Old Testament and some are from the New but they all speak about Christ, about who he is and what he's done 
and who he did it for. The pool of Siloam only watered the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It only watered the king's garden, both of which represent the elect of God. So we can appreciate the doctrine of, of limited atonement with respect to the typologies that are set before us here and the way the Lord constructed um, Jerusalem and the way he constructed the temple and the fact that the um, Hezekiah was moved by God to dig a conduit through it to deliver the water to the people. So, though Jesus cries aloud in the temple, he cries abroad in the temple of a truth, only his people will come to him and drink and believe on him. And the Lord has said that no man can come to me unless the Father which has sent me draw him. He had already taught that in John chapter 6. Now, we have in Isaiah 58, verse 11, Isaiah chapter 58, verse 11, words that will help us to appreciate what's in view here in John chapter 7 at the Feast of Tabernacles, which speak of our time on this earth, a time when we, the elect, the saints of God, sojourn on this earth in the tabernacle of our corrupt bodies, tabernacles in which we dwell until such time as the Lord brings us to our heavenly home. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 and 15, he speaks of the body as a tabernacle, so that this is not a, a stretch or a metaphor of any kind. He specifically refers to his body as a tabernacle, which he will soon put off. So we are wandering in a temporary dwelling, our tabernacle, as we sojourn in this earth. As in Isaiah 58, 11, it says, And the Lord shall guide thee, continually and satisfy thy soul in drought and make fat thy bones and thou shalt be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. This one verse pulls together so many of the things that I've been talking about here. It's almost like it was written by God. <laughs> um, so here we have a promise of God that speaks of his providential hand leading us and giving us sufficient drink in a drought, sufficient to both supply our souls and from which shall come forth waters. We shall both drink and be like an unfailing spring of water, just as the Lord has said here in John chapter 7. Now, given all that is set before us here, I think we can appreciate how Jesus is the source of water. Here in John chapter 7, we should appreciate that as the waters empty from the solid rock upon which the temple stands, so too do living waters flow from Christ, the rock upon which the church is built. The church, of course, is the true temple of God, and it is our heavenly Mount Zion, our heavenly Jerusalem. So the next question is, how is it that we who have come to Christ and drunk from the well of salvation, that's a term from Isaiah 12, 3, he is the well of salvation, how do we become a source of blessing to others? Again, John 7, 38, as the scripture hath said. So what is the scripture said in Isaiah, excuse me, in Proverbs 18, 4. In Proverbs 18, 4, we read, The words of a man's mouth are as deep waters and a wellspring of wisdom as a flowing brook. The words of a man's mouth are as deep waters and the wellspring of wisdom as a flowing brook. So imagine here words of wisdom, which is the gospel, emanating from the inner man and going forth out through his mouth. Going out from the man that believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, the man that has been born from above, born again. From that man's mouth will flow forth 
a wellspring of wisdom and life as he goes forth and he preaches the gospel. Proverbs 10.11 says, The mouth of a righteous man is a well of life. The mouth of a righteous man is a well of life. Now you recall back in John chapter 4, verse 14, that Jesus affirmed these things respecting those who believe on him, those whom he gives the Holy Ghost to. When he says in verse 14 of John chapter 4, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him, and the one in whom the Lord gives the Holy Ghost, the water shall be in him, a well of water springing up unto eternal life. Water that we might offer the world as we go forth preaching Christ, who himself is the personification of wisdom and life. So to be clear, we who have drunk of Christ, we are not ourselves the dispensers of the Holy Ghost. We do not direct where God goes. Christians are neither the source of nor direct the movements of the Holy Ghost. God is the source and directs the movements of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost, who is God, is of the Godhead. Scripture teaches us that the baptism of the Holy Ghost comes from either the Holy Ghost himself, the Holy Ghost goeth where he listeth, or it's by Christ, whom we read that John the Baptist says, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost, or it's from the Father. So either way, it's coming from God. We are simply... Um, laborers of the Lord going forth and preaching Christ, who is the water of life. So as Christians, we need to be faithful about that, about preaching the gospel. Now, you will note that the ver uh, this chapter 7 of John closes out with verse 53, where it says, And every man went unto his own house. So sadly, it would seem that no one came to Jesus and drank. No one believed on him with salvific import of a truth had Christ not drawn us to himself, we too all would have gone to our own houses. <clears throat> However, as we're going to learn in John chapter 14, that Jesus went to the cross to prepare a place for us, a place far superior to the corrupt tabernacles in which we presently dwell. So as we close out the seventh chapter of John, let us be mindful that Jesus is the only source of true life. Life that can only be had by His grace, through faith in Him and in Him alone. So let us drink from Him and drink of Him alone. Amen. Amen.